Father, we come before you, Lord. Thank you for another day that you've blessed us with. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together, that we can worship you, that we can edify one another, build one another up, that we can encourage one another, Lord, day after day, that we can carry one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, that we can pray with one another, that we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, that we can be the body of Christ that you've called us to be, Lord. So I pray today that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to live for you, to learn from you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to grow in our faith, to grow in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and to be the light in this world that you've called us to be. So Lord, be with us right now. Guard us from the enemy. Guard us from any evil thought. Remove any distractions, any hindrances, anything, Lord, that would get in the way of us learning about you, loving you, growing, Lord, in our relationship with you and one another. So bless this message and be with us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Knowing the Father. Knowing the Father. There's an epidemic in our nation sweeping through homes and devastating many. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.5 million children are affected by this plague. It sweeps through more than one in four homes. It destroys families. It devastates children. And according to one study, infant death within the first 28 days of life is four times higher when this hits a home. The pain, the anguish, the agony, the sorrow caused by this epidemic apart from the grace of God leaves many hopeless and helpless. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. I'm not referring to COVID-19. I'm talking about fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. Homes without a father. Roland Warren states, quote, kids have a hole in their soul in the shape of their dad. And if their father is unwilling or unable to fill that hole, it can leave a wound that is not easily healed. Isn't that the truth? I come from one of these homes. Perhaps you guys do too. Perhaps some of you do too. Based on the statistics, one in every four homes. Now, perhaps 30, 40 years ago it was different. Perhaps even further back in the history of our country it was different. But as our world grows colder and colder, the hearts of many, as the scripture says, will grow cold and sin is running rampant. And this is what we see in our nation. I don't want to tell my whole story. I just want to share just a brief, brief summary quickly as to how it relates to this message. I never really knew my dad. He was in and out of the home, in and out of rehab, in and out of my life. One day he'd be somewhat normal and stable, and the next day unstable, the next day unpredictable. One moment kind and gentle, sweet, the next moment ready to hurt someone, ready to fly off the handle, completely unpredictable. That's how I remember my childhood. That's how I remember my early teenage years. We eventually got a restraining order against my dad. I had to testify in a courtroom in front of him as he questioned me on the witness stand. And he met me in the hallway and uttered the last words that I think he ever spoke to me, which was, Nick, have a nice life. 
thanks for taking your mom's side. My parents later divorced, and then last year my dad passed away from a drug overdose. He died alone, died with nothing to his name. He chose to live for himself. Now sin has consequences. And it's sad and it's horrific and it's devastating, but that's the story of my relationship with my father. Now there's many more details in between and some of you who know me and know my family and know the story know some of those details and perhaps I'll share those another time, but the pain and the confusion and the, the distress and the affliction and the hurt and all these ways to describe all that went on in my family and my relationship with my dad, it's, it's hard to even put into words at times. I, I still deal with the pain, I think, as an adult and how it even relates to my wife and to my kids um, because sin has lingering effects that last a lifetime and sin doesn't just affect our own lives it affects and it permeates the lives of those around us and the Bible describes sin as like leaven which leavens the whole lump it it permeates people's lives around us and it causes devastation like a tornado that sweeps through a town and just leaves so many people hurt and homes destroyed and things devastated but I don't stay there I don't dwell there and I don't live there. I don't live in the past. I have a God who says that he gives a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I know a God who says he anoints our heads with oil. He says our cups overflow. He says surely goodness and mercy will follow me, King David in Psalm 23 all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My God's mercies are new every morning. My God is a rock. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. He's a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows. He makes a home for the lonely and leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Listen to these scriptures. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my heart and in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5. People will let you down. Fathers will or perhaps have let you down. But God, our Heavenly Father, will never let you down. Blessed is the man who has made him his trust. His wonders are too numerous to count. None compare with him. We have hope this Father's Day. We have hope every day. We have hope today because we have a future, because our God is good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, 
but will have everlasting life. God has showed us so many ways how much he loves us, how much he loves the world. There's a book on my bookshelf at home called The Existence and the Attributes of God. Perhaps you've heard of it. It was written in the 1600s by a guy with the name Stephen Sharnock. It's a book about this thick. And when I see a book about that thick, it's hard for me to even open the first page. It's like telling someone to run a marathon who barely can jog a mile. And so for me, it's like I have these books and they look good on the bookshelf, but I someday, with the Lord's help, will slowly work my way through them. But it's a book about the attributes of God. 500 pages. He's trying to explain who God is. He's trying to grasp who God is, to know who God is. And 500 pages is not even enough, is it? He's just scratching the surface. It's perhaps going to take an eternity to know who God is. Romans 11:33. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That word unfathomable means incomprehensible, not able to trace the steps of past finding out. His ways are past finding out, is what Paul says in Romans 11.33. Yet in God's great love, he has revealed himself to us. He's given us an ability to know him, to know who he is, and to see how great a love he's bestowed upon us. 1 John 3.1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world so desperately needs to know the Father, to truly experientially know him, not to, know, not to just know things about him. And we've talked about this last week, Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just grow in head knowledge of who Jesus is, but to know him experientially. So the word used there in 1 John 3, 1, that it did not know him, the world did not know him, whether referring to both, I believe, both the Father and the Son. They didn't know Christ, they rejected him, and by rejecting him, they rejected the Father. They didn't know him. Gnosko is the Greek word. It speaks of experiential knowledge, firsthand acquaintance. Knowledge gained by experience, by an active relationship between the one who knows and the person or the thing known. Used in Luke 131 of where it talks about how Mary said to the angel when the angel said, you are going to bear a son and his name shall be called Jesus. Luke 134, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I did not know a man? Gnosko. Most translations or some say because I am a virgin, NIV and NAS. King James Version, I do not know a man. I have not intimately known a man, Gnosko. Do you know the Father, Gnosko? Experiential knowledge, a spiritual intimacy with the Father, knowing the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know him in that way, to know the Father and to know the Son. 
Stephen Sharnock stated, quote, a man may be theologically knowing and spiritually ignorant. Knowledge in the head is, is as money in the wallet. He said purse, but I changed it to wallet. It's Father's Day. Knowledge in the head is as money in the wallet. Knowledge in the heart is as money for our use. Head knowledge is as good as money just put away. Heart knowledge, gnosko, experiential knowledge, truly knowing God is money that's for use. It's applicable knowledge. It's knowledge that leads to obedience. Practical knowledge, true knowledge. And the world needs this true knowledge. Many people know things about God. It's all over the money. It's, it's behind our nation. It's in the documents. In God we trust. His name is throughout. People know things about God. They know things about the Father. They know things about Jesus Christ, but they don't know him. When I worked at the rescue mission, people would come through on a daily basis. I did the interviews. I was the gatekeeper. Guys would come through me to get into the mission. I I interviewed all sorts of people, people in front of me that were so high they could barely respond to questions, people that I didn't know if were going to pass out right in front of me. A whole gamut of people came in there. And if you ask them things about the Bible and about God and Jesus, most of them had answers. Most of them were raised in a Catholic home or a Christian home or they knew things about God. They knew things about Christ, but they didn't know him. And that was my job to show them Jesus, to show them the love of the Father, to show them their sin, to bring them to the law, to bring them to repentance so that they would want to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what I would plead with them. Become new in Christ. Truly know him. Embrace him. As Ray Comfort says, like a parachute, if you're getting ready to jump out of an airplane, you may know things about a parachute. It may be sitting there next to you. You may know what it could do, but unless you put it on, it's not going to be of any use to you when you jump out of that airplane. And same with Jesus Christ, unless you fully trust in him. Throughout the book of John, Jesus testifies that the world does not know the Father. And this displeases Jesus. His heart is that they would know the Father. John 8, 55. You have, com- you have not come to know me, or you have not come to know him, is what Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders. You have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. John 16, 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. He says they will throw you into jail or they will persecute you. They will do all sorts of evil things, even professing to know God or even to do it in the name of God, Jesus said. But they do not know him. John 17, 25, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, Yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. If you want to look at a couple verses with me in John 17, verses 22 and 23. John 17, 22 and 23. Throughout this high priestly prayer, you see Jesus referring to the world. You see Jesus referring to his disciples and those who will follow him. 
and those who do follow him and will follow him later. And he's making a contrast here throughout this high priestly prayer. And he says in John 17, 22, and the glory which you have given me, speaking to the Father, I have given to them, to the disciples, to his followers, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. How is the world going to know that the Father loves them? I mean, that's what the text says. I read about 10 commentaries on this text that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Who is the and loved them? Who is that? It's the world. And so many commentators skipped over this part. But doesn't this correlate to John 3:16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. How is the world going to know that God has loved them and that God sent Jesus through our unity? one main way that the world will know seeing Christians love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another how is the Christian church doing how are we doing the Cambridge commentary states and love them quote the first first the world is induced to believe that God sent Christ and that he loved the world even as he loved Christ. That he loved the world even as he loved Christ. He's calling out to the world, turn to Christ. We are Christ's hands and feet. We are the body. We go out into the world preaching the good news. Come, believe, receive Christ, turn from sin, embrace him, and live eternally. What if someone came into this fellowship? What if we were angry and fighting and divisive and just really rude to each other. Praise God, we're not like that. I don't know what you guys do behind the scenes, but in front of me, you guys do a pretty good job. Pretty good at faking it, if that's what you're doing, hugging each other. And, you know, even some new people I've heard, you know, this hugging thing's a little weird. I said, what about the holy kiss thing in the Bible? Because I don't even know what to do with that, but that was in that culture at that time. But we show our love for each other in different ways. But if someone comes into this place and we're filled with joy and we're praising the Lord and we're worshiping and we're praising God and exalting him, what does that show this person that comes in? What does it show them about God the Father if they don't know him? If they don't know the Lord? Hopefully it resembles and it shows his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy, the attributes of God. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet. How are we reflecting the Father's love to the world. How are we doing it in our own lives? How are we doing it in our families? How are we doing it in the church? The world so desperately needs to know the love of the Father through Jesus Christ. According to King, KingdomMenInspires.com, 63% of youth suicides occur from f- out of fatherless homes. 63%. of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 
71% of all high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers are from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth sitting in prisons come from fatherless homes. I don't know if epidemic is a strong enough of a word. And perhaps I could quote statistics just the entire sermon. I'll just give you statistic after statistic because there are a lot of them of the devastating effects of fathers not being present in their families' lives. It's devastating, but it's a reality of the condition of the world that we, lived in, that we live in. But of all the statistics and all these numbers, if they knew Jesus Christ, if they knew the love of the Father, the statistics would come crumbling down. They would come crashing down. Children, youths, addicts, and homeless men and women, their lives would be transformed. They need the power of the gospel in their lives. It's the only thing that will transform them. If you go to churches, if you go to rescue missions, if you go to places where they're trying to help some of these kids and youth and homeless, they're trying all sorts of different avenues to reach them. They're, they're dealing up here rather than down here with the gospel of Christ, the power of the grace of God through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for our sins. All sorts of behavior modification, all sorts of change your diet up and go for a run and yoga and all sorts of things rather than sticking to the truth of the gospel, rather than sticking to God's word. God will give them the abundant life so that those debating suicide will no longer debate that. He'll give a home to a hopeless and to the homeless. He will, he will be the rock that will bring stability to those with behavioral issues. He'll give wisdom and discipline to those contemplating dropping out of school. He'll give power through his Holy Spirit to break the chains of drug abuse and addiction. He'll take that heart that's dark and stony and sinful He'll take it out and give them a new heart, a heart of joy, a heart of peace, a heart filled with the Holy Spirit where prison will not be an option. That's what they need. How will they know him? How will they know the Father? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the answer. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. Jesus has made the Father known. The Greek word exogeomai is actually where we get the English word exegete. Jesus has exegeted the Father. John 1.18. If a pastor, a teacher, a preacher exegetes a text well, we say that they interpret the Bible correctly. They're explaining the word correctly. Eisegesis is bad interpretation, bad explanation, bad interpretation of the Bible. Jesus is a perfect exegete. He perfectly explains and relates the Father to us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if we're going to show people the love of the Father, we need to show them Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Icon is the Greek word there. 
It means more than a shadow. It's a replication. It's a mirror-like representation. He is the image of God, the Father. So with the time remaining, I want to look at three attributes of God. There's so many attributes of God. Go read Stephen Charnock's book. Might take you a while. Go type in attributes online and search articles. I just chose three, the time that we have remaining. I want to look at three attributes of God and talk a little bit about how Jesus explains God through these attributes. Attribute number one, God is compassionate. In the Old Testament, it's also translated merciful. This is repeated throughout the Bible. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passes in front of Moses and, it, and he said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is slow to anger. You talk to some people and they say, look at how angry God is in the Old Testament. You know, he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He, look at the plagues in Egypt and look at what he did to his people and look at God is just a God of wrath in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's just a God of love and grace and peace and look at Jesus. He's holding lambs and he's holding children and he's just so sweet and kind and gentle but God, he's this angry dictator is what atheists will blaspheme God and say. Yet if you look at the Old Testament, how patient God is with not only his people, but the surrounding nations. And he says, all day long, my hands are outstretched to you. He's pleading with them. He's sending them prophet after prophet, telling them to turn from their wicked ways. He's showing them signs and wonders and miracles, parting the Red Sea, showing the Israelites the plagues brought down on Egypt, and they will not turn to him. They'll turn to him for a season when it's convenient for them, when their bellies are fed, when they're getting what they want, when their selfish desires are being met. And so God tests them over and over again. He says, I want to know if you truly trust me. I want to see if you really love me, if you really know me. So he sends them out into the wilderness with no water, with no food. He wants to see what they're really made of. He wants to see if they really love God for who God is, not if they just love the food or the possessions that they just took from Egypt. If you read the story, they plundered the Egyptians. They took gold and silver. They took all sorts of things. These things took over in their lives. So God tested them. And he saw that they didn't really love him. Yet he was patient, 40 years laboring over them. God is a patient, compassionate God. Nehemiah 9.31 says, Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, speaking of unfaithful Israel. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. If you remember when they're partying in front of this golden calf, God tells Moses, that's it. I'm going to make an end to them, all of them. I'm just going to wipe them all out. And Moses, a picture of Christ, mediates and says, No, Lord, blot me out of your book. Blot me out, Lord. God was so patient. What would you do? <laughs> and wipe them all out, right? You guys crazy? Are you guys insane? God has shown himself to you in so many ways, and you're going to turn to an idol? You're going to turn to sin? And that's us apart from the grace of God. That was us uh, before Christ. Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. 
This is repeated in Psalm 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, and several other places. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. I want to be slow to anger. I know with my kids, I'm not slow to anger many times. I know I'm quick to lash out at them, and then I'm quick to justify it and say, well, look what he did. Even this morning, I was trying to put Verity, or Mercy's shoes on, my little two-year-old girl, and Leland jumps on my back and puts me in a headlock, and he just, he's got so much energy. He just wants to play all the time. I haven't met a kid with as much energy as him. And Leah and I don't know where he gets it because we are low energy. We are sit back, relax. We don't get it. But at the worst times, at the times I'm tired and I'm weak and I'm on edge, are the times where he'll punch me. or he'll, and For him, he's, it's all fun and games. And I'm like, Leland, please, honey, I'm trying to put on these cowboy boots on Mercy that don't fit, and it's very frustrating. I'm putting the zipper down, and I don't know, slip-ons or shoes are so hard to put on kids. It's like they make it like that on purpose. I don't know, but it's hard. Being a father is hard sometimes. It's a blessing. It's full of joy. But man, I need to imitate the father in this. I need to be slow to anger. I need to show compassion. I need to take a second and go, my son just wants to play with me. I mean, what if he never jumped on my back? What if he never wanted to play with me? I'd probably be so distraught and depressed. Like my son just wants to be over by himself. But it can turn into a complaint and anger very quickly if I'm not careful. So when we look at the attributes of the Father, we want to grow in them and we want to learn them and then we want to live them out in our lives. James Jackson in Texas, Navy SEAL, great guy, texted me this morning. He texted me Psalm 103.13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God, our Father, he's who we imitate as fathers. He's who we long to be more like. Just as he was compassionate towards his children, we need to be as well. I heard a pastor recently who shared his testimony and said that when he was a kid, if his dad asked him a question, if he didn't answer it perfectly, if he didn't answer it just exactly as the father, his father wanted him to, he would tie him to a tree and he would beat him over and over and over and leave him there. And he said it was so painful, so humiliating. Anytime he asked me to do something, I was so scared because I thought maybe I'm going to give him the wrong answer. Maybe I'm going to say it the wrong way. I was always trying to impress him. I was always trying to do what he said. And yet he would constantly beat me over and over again. And he said his father died when he was around, when this pastor was around 13. His father died and he said it was a relief. He said, I'm sorry to say it. I was almost happy because I knew I didn't have to get beat up anymore. Some of us, if we're not careful, we can take those skewed beliefs or those skewed understandings and give them to God. We can view God as how our earthly father has treated us. We can view God as how those who have been in authority positions in our lives have treated us. 
and you can start to think that maybe God is always out to get you. That if you're following him and living for him and believe in Christ, but you trip up, he's just ready to, he's just ready to smack you around. He's just ready to trample on you. That's not the God of the Bible. He's slow to anger. He's full of compassion and loving kindness. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The men's group on Tuesday night, that's what we're memorizing, Psalm 34. So men, if you're coming, I hope you guys are starting to dig into Psalm 34. First two verses. But Psalm 34, 8, he's near to the brokenhearted. If you've fallen to sin, if, if you aren't meeting up to the standard of Christ and you're brokenhearted over it, he's right there. He's right there to give you mercy. He's right there to grant compassion. He's right there to forgive you. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who doesn't need rest for their souls? Who in this world doesn't need rest? Who isn't heavy laden at times? Who isn't anxious? Who isn't burdened by the things of life? Jesus said, come to me. What prophet just said, come to me? Imagine Moses, come to me, I'll give you rest. No, Moses, you can't give me rest. Jeremiah, you can't give me rest. Ezekiel, none of the prophets. Jesus was more than a prophet. God in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Go to the Father and find rest in him. And guess what Jesus is quoting? In part, he's quoting Jeremiah 6.16, where God says, walk in the good way and you shall find rest for your souls. God is a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. So know that. Attribute number two, our Father is holy. God is holy. Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You remember Isaiah? He's like, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's trembling. It's going to take a miracle for him to be spared. Woe is me, he says. Judgment upon me in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. Do we remember that when we pray to him, when we sing to him, when we live every day that God is holy, sacred, set apart, exalted, without sin, without impurity? Moses and the Israelites sing in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, after Hannah is given Samuel as a son, she cries out to the Lord, no one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. One theologian states, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. Pure, holy, righteous, good, that is our God. 
and these qualities are lacking in our culture. Our culture seems to hate these qualities. They're running in the opposite direction at light speed. They hate holiness. They hate purity. But if you and I claim to know the Father, if we know his holiness, we will grow in holiness. We will grow in purity. We will grow in being set apart from the world, set apart with our families, with our loved ones, with our church. First Peter 1, 15 and 16, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I love what Jesus said in John eight forty six. which one of you convicts me of sin? Go ahead. Tell me where I've sinned. Tell me where I've broken God's commandments. Tell me where I've broken the law. Go ahead, show me. Nobody could. He was without sin. Perfect. The image of the invisible God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Even though he was mocked, even though he was ridiculed, even though he was beaten, even though he was constantly around sin and sinners pointing them to himself and to salvation, he was without sin, perfect and holy. First Peter 2, 22 and 23, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, that's verbally assaulted, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Man, that's hard to do. If you're married, how do you react when your spouse says something that you don't like? How do you react when they do something you don't like? How do you react if they don't put the cap on the toothpaste? That's what I do sometimes, and Leah's actually pretty sweet about it. But there's things that bother us about our spouses, right? They say things, they can do things. If you're around each other long enough, two sinners in one home, two sinners around each other, you're bound enough to have a couple sweet fights, if you will, right? A little bit of arguments, some disputes. When I think of Jesus and how he was reviled, beaten up, mocked, and just didn't respond, held his tongue, bit his tongue, that's how I want to be. If I don't like something, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. I want to be like God in this respect. How many times a day is God's name, how many times is his name blasphemed in our world? How many times a day is God mocked or ridiculed or even ignored? Can you imagine a cockroach mocking a lion? How about a jellyfish popping off to a great white shark? How about a little ant taunting a grizzly bear? Pretty silly, right? It's a thousand times, infinitely more times silly when human beings want to stick their hands in the air, their finger in the air, want to taunt and ridicule and mock a thrice holy God. Job, where were you when I found or when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Come on, Job. And Job wasn't mocking God. He wasn't ridiculing God. He had some pretty serious questions. He almost crossed the line a couple times, and God put him in his place. Gird up your loins like a man, Job. Listen to me. Where were you when I founded this earth? 
and just one after another. He's just putting Job in his place. Do you know my grace, Job? Do you know my compassion? Do you know my holiness? God is good, righteous, holy, pure, and set apart from humans. And last, lastly, last attribute, our Father is gracious. God is gracious. If it weren't for the grace of God, the world would be destroyed before I finish this sentence. He would destroy the whole world right now. He could do it very easily. And same thing with Jesus when he was about to go to the cross. Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I can call down all these legion of angels and destroy them? Don't you know that, Peter? It's very easily done. I can do this. Yet he showed patience. He showed grace, compassion. He longs to show grace and mercy. Second Peter 3.9, God is not slow as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's his grace. That's his patience. He's waiting. He wants the gospel to go forth. We're his hands and feet. He's doing all things according to the counsel of his will. He's bringing more and more people into the kingdom. Aren't you thankful he didn't destroy the world 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, while we were living in sin perhaps, while we weren't following the Lord? He's patient. He's a patient God. He's gracious. Martin Luther, who was tormented in a monastery, beating himself up, literally whipping himself in the back, bleeding, because he didn't understand the grace of God. He didn't understand the righteousness of Christ. He was trying to attain heaven and grace by good works, trying to work his way to favor with God. And he states, quote, I did not think about women. I did not think about money or possessions. While in this monastery, he says, instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me. If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. He just said, God can't be gracious to me. There's probably this sin that is holding him back from being gracious to me. There's probably this hidden sin in my life. And he would constantly go to his teacher and say, you know, I'm going to confess all these things to you today. You know, I I moved the mat over and I didn't do it quick enough. And I I went over here and I I didn't fast long enough. I I didn't say enough prayers today. I only memorized 10 verses today. And I just don't know if I have gained God's grace. I don't know if I've gained God's favor. He was miserable. And many Christians are like that, trying to work their way. If I just do enough things, and if we're not careful, we can drift into that. Did I memorize enough today? Did I read enough today? I'm not on a missions trip like this person. I'm not a pastor like that person. This person over there is so holy, and I'm not. And we need to go back to the cross. We need to go back to Christ. We need to go back to grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. It's all Christ. It's his righteousness. He paid the price. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He kept all the laws that you and I can't keep. He did all the work. We need to believe. We need to trust. We need to be like a little child and humble ourselves and say, Lord, help me. Every time we mess up, every time we don't meet the standard, thank him for his grace. Thank him for the cross. 
Thank him for the atonement and what he did for you and I. If you remember Jonah, God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Tell them to repent of their wickedness. Go and preach to them. Tell them to turn to me. Jonah fled to Tarshish. It says he ran from the presence of the Lord. He at least tried to. Went in the opposite way. That never works when we don't obey the Lord. Why did Jonah do that? Why did Jonah just not say, okay, God, you're God, I am not, I will go, and I will preach that they will repent and turn to you? What was it? The answer is found in Jonah 4.2. Listen to what Jonah says. Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. God, I knew that you would forgive them. I knew that you would show grace to them. And I didn't want to go to them because I don't like them, Lord. I hate them. I hate what they do. I hate what they stand for. They're not Jewish people. They're Ninevites, which is in Assyria. They're Gentile people. They don't know God. And I want nothing to do with them. I want them destroyed. And some commentators say that's what he did. He went up on the hill hoping that God would destroy them and he could watch as God destroyed them. You see, he knew God was gracious. Going back to what I talked about earlier, it's like money in the wallet. But it wasn't money for use. It was head knowledge. It wasn't heart knowledge. See, if he really knew, if he truly knew God's grace and what he deserved, he would be more willing to show God's grace to others. He wouldn't have fled. He would have went because he would have said, I don't deserve life. They don't either, but I'm going to go and show grace. And sometimes when we don't understand grace, we don't give it to others. We're very quick to trample on them, put them down. The moment they mess up, we're right on them. But the moment we mess up, we want grace. So may we grow in the grace of the Father. He's compassionate. He's holy. He's gracious. He's so much more that we didn't even talk about. God is love. God is light, and in in him there is no darkness at all. He's a good father. And the more we grow in him, the more we know him, the more we'll live it out in our lives, in our families, and in the world.